Welcome to Season 2 of The Reading Cure. In this episode, we'll be discussing the play Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf by Edward Albee. Welcome to The Reading Cure, the bibliotherapy podcast in which great books and great ideas are what we like to prescribe. My name is Dr Stephen Davis and my co-host is Dr Alexander Fox. Well, we're delighted to be back with our second run of 12 episodes and as before we'll be looking at various great works of literature and books about psychology and philosophy and this week we're starting with a play by the American playwright Edward Albee. So I'll start off by giving you a little bit of background into Albee and then I'll tell you a bit about the play that we're going to be looking at. So Edward Albee was an acclaimed American playwright known for plays such as The Sandbox, Three Tall Women and The Delicate Balance. He was born in 1928 and immediately adopted by a wealthy New York family. However, his early years were unsettled ones. He was repeatedly expelled from various colleges and described his home life as stultifying and suffocating when interviewed in later life, and one in which he felt coerced towards a career in corporate America. Therefore, I'll be left home, aged 18, to pursue his dream of becoming a writer, moving to Greenwich Village and supporting himself with various odd jobs as he learned to perfect his craft. By the early 1960s, his plays had made it to Broadway, and within a few years, he enjoyed enormous success and critical acclaim with the play that we are covering in this episode, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Albee's writing career spanned six decades until his death in 2016, during which time he penned over 25 plays and collected an array of awards, including multiple Pulitzers and Tonys. He became a distinguished university professor and taught playwriting at the University of Houston. In his obituary, the New York Times described Albee as the foremost American playwright of his generation. Now, as for the play that we're covering here, it depicts the chaotic and embittered events at the home of a sharp-witted but resigned history lecturer named George and his wife Martha, the fiery and ambitious daughter of the university president. Following a faculty party in which the middle-aged couple have been drinking heavily, aggravating each other from afar, and in which the play's unusual title, which is a pun on the song Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf, has emerged as an in-joke that is never fully explained to us. We soon learn that, unbeknownst to George, his wife Martha has in fact invited a young couple, Nick and Honey, that she met at the party around for a late night after party due to Martha's being rather enamoured by the newly appointed young biology lecturer Nick. What follows is an increasingly drunken and at times raucous few hours of savage emotional games in which Martha and George draw the seemingly more placid younger couple into their intense, bitter and dysfunctional psychodrama. As the night progresses and Martha and George's antagonism to each other and at times their guests reaches boiling point, Martha incenses her husband by bringing up the subject of their son. As the couple's antagonism to each other and at times their unwitting guess reaches boiling point, Martha actually seduces Nick, leaving George both simultaneously laughing and crying in what to him seems to be absurdity and bitter despair. 
His retaliation comes later as the four reconvene in the drawing room by his announcing that he has received a telegram stating that their son has been killed in a car crash. Initially horrified, distressed and bewildered by Martha's grief and George's ironic tone, it dawns on Nick and Honey that there is really no such son. In fact, due to their inability to conceive, Martha and George have invented the fantasy of the son as another game, but one that was previously never shared with anyone else. George has opted to kill the imaginary son now in revenge for Martha's indiscretion, and thus the play culminates on a more peaceful, open but sombre note as the middle-aged couple, again left by themselves, now contemplate a future together without the use of such games and illusions. Albie wrote this play in 1962 and after it became a major Broadway success it was adapted for screen four years later by Ernest Lehman and with Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton cast in the leading roles and in which both would deliver truly remarkable performances. We are therefore recommending that you watch this brilliant performance as a compliment to this episode, and it's freely available on YouTube, so we'll post a link to that in our show notes. So the first question, Alec, was about the the relationship between George and Martha in this play. Obviously, it is predominantly comprised of mutual antagonism. So there's really a two-part question to that one. Firstly, do you think this is more due to there being an incompatible match or to there being particularly neurotic individuals? And secondly, do you see either party as being more at fault for this perpetual conflict? Yeah, I mean, these are you know, interesting, somewhat difficult questions to answer because <laughs> for me, I mean, this is not starters for 10, is it, it really? I mean, <laughs> no, certainly not, no. <laughs> uh, but then this, this is a, a, a brilliant and complex play. My my take on it is that probably a, one of the main points in the play is that these are, these are two people that seem initially as very incompatible but have a strange and deeper compatibility if that makes sense yes yeah uh what what i mean is and i I think this was something that martha herself acknowledged when she said that george was able to keep up with her games Mm. as as she kept on changing them so that you know there was this intimation from martha that george and her understood each other quite deeply yes and in a sort of ironic way because they both were capitulating and developing a fantasy, you do have to have a kind of compatibility on a deeper level to make that work. Yeah. Uh, I'm not saying that necessarily we need to to read that notion of a fantasy entirely realistically in the psychological sense. Sure. But but you know the if two people were to maintain that and cultivate that and, and for neither of them to give up on that, then there, there is a kind of love and loyalty and compatibility there. At least that's how it struck me. Yeah, I, I think that's a, that is a very uh, precise and spot on. I think, Alec, I would agree with that. Um, 
I mean, to me, as you, as you sort of suggested, you know, you're, you're initially struck by the fact of there being opposite. You know, she obviously Martha's this very kind of embodied, emotionally expressive, kind of combative person, and obviously, you know, George is more cerebral, maybe introverted, and but but nevertheless, they're they're both very willful. Um, but we do get even early on the scene where they've come back from the party. There's there's an argument, partially in progress, about the fact that Martha's invited this young couple along to the house without yes. checking with George and so on. But even there, there is there's this interest and blend of affection that then quickly shifts back into conflict. So yeah, I I, I would agree with you the idea that the, to me it, what they seemed like they both have a kind of contempt for each other's way of being. So there is a kind of failure in empathy, but not a failure of understanding, actually. They get each other quite, you know, and, and thus they kind of want to caricature and denigrate each other when they get frustrated. You know, it's a very strange mixture yes. of, of I, yeah. think, um, well, I think. I think you're right that they are opposites in, you know, some obvious ways. Yeah. And one of the, one of the strengths of the play is that you can sort of see where each of them are coming from when yeah. they when they describe the other. So, you know, for the refined culture, George with his dry wit, Martha yeah. does seem rather uh, unrefined. And, uh, well, he almost says, I've seen at one point, which yes. is probably more a statement of his psychology. But there is a kind of crassness to Martha at times, yeah. which... George, it's, George is quite sensitized to because he is the intellectual with the dry wit. On the other hand, Martha sees George as someone that doesn't really exist in a tangible way. You know, she mm -hmm. said that she would divorce him if he existed. Yes. And I think what she means uh, there, or, or another way of putting it is to what extent we might say that what she says is legitimate is that he's not a man of action. And it's clear that that Martha assumes that men should be commanding and taking action. Yeah. And he is, you know, seen as not fully a man by her. You know, there's always an attempt to, to emasculate him at times, you know, when she talks about the soccer punch that she delivered. Yeah. And, uh, you know, humiliates him telling that story. That's when he brings the rifle through. <laughs> <laughs> yes. uh, but, the, but you know, she does see him as emasculated. And she also does, you know, in her crueler moments, an emasculating uh, operation on him, really, with, with what she says. But I think that in as far as she's got a point, it is that he is someone that is uh, somewhat resigned and lost any drive uh so so they have i think this is the thing that if they were total opposites with no love involved it would be unlikely that there would be a pointedness to their critique of each other i know yeah. that might sound odd to say but i think the fact that they are incisive about each other up to a point mm -hmm. suggests yep. that they do understand each other but of course they also miss the target they also overstate it uh, you know, it's not as though Martha's, you know, quite obscene in how she behaves. That's coming from somebody unusually reserved in a way. Uh, likewise, it's not as though he doesn't exist. It's just that she overemphasizes achievement and action that, that's represented by her father. 
I, I absolutely, I think, I think you're spot on. Um, I, I mean, he, he obviously, you know, throughout the play calls her, you know, a hyena, a pig, yeah. you know, a cocker spaniel, a, a monster, you know, it's all this, you know, it's, it's like, again, there's a kind of derision that's coming from, he knows he's caricaturing her, you know, he, he wants to make out, you know, how terribly unrefined and animal-like she is. But I mean, that, as you say, he's too, well, he's too intelligent really to, to not, see through his own caricature there there's obviously just a more of an element of of getting the boot in but but playing upon something that you know could be a legitimate criticism to a point yes yeah and, and i totally agree with you i mean i think that it's very um i think if if we can trace back a route to to this perpetual conflict i think that's a difficult thing to do it is very clear that martha is you know she she sees a, a man is somebody who, as you suggested, should be, you know, be extremely ambitious, maybe also aggressive, masculine physique, and all these things that she seems to equate with her father. And, you know, so obviously George is, you know, he's in that diabolical situation really where the, the father is like his boss and he's constantly been found to be second rate, not even a worthy successor. You know, so obviously all this resentment and inferiority is bubbling up in him and he's but he's 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 more passive aggressive, I think, maybe by nature, you know, in terms of how he deals with it with his sharp, you know, jibes and so on. Um it's just not really his character to be so as you suggested, action oriented and ambitious and so on. He's just not not into that really, which means I suppose he's feeling rejected by her. Uh, yeah, well I think that I mean, if if we were to be a defence lawyer for George here, mm. I think that uh, that maybe she didn't appreciate the kind of ambition or the kind of success that he wanted because there was intimations that he wanted to be an author, a novelist, yes, uh, and that that was crushed by her father. That that you know the patriarch that said, "No, you can't publish this and be a, a member of this faculty." Yeah. But I think there was an ambitiousness in that way, but it wasn't one that she appreciated because. You know, she sees, I think her vision of success for him would be that he took over the history department and then he would become like her dad, you know, the <laughs> president of the whole university. Yes. So because she's got this very circumscribed view of success, she doesn't really understand the way in which he might have wished to succeed. So, yeah, it might not be that he was unambitious. It's just that he, he did not have the ambition of Nick you know, the younger academic. Yes, exactly. Uh, you know, Nick, the younger academic, is someone that does want to be Martha's father, ultimately, and he will do what he needs to do, include sleep his way to the top. Yeah. And that's very different to what, you know, uh, George, you know, how he wanted to, to play it. And, and, a, and a, I think that in some regards, even though it doesn't seem like this initially, that that comparing George with Nick, that George, you know, emerges in some ways favourably, really, because he he wasn't interested, it seems, in that academic power games, uh, really, uh, like Nick. Nick's, Nick's uh, someone that even at the age of 28 is already fully accepting the sort of life he, he feels he needs to lead. Uh, he, he accepts that... Uh, you know, I wouldn't say quite Machiavellian plan, but mm. certainly very, you know, but you know, manipulative and uh, ambitious. Yeah. You know, power focus, status focus, and he accepts that 
without complaint. You know, he embraces it. Whereas, you know, it seems that George never wanted that. And he recognizes, George recognizes in Nick the other. Yes. I, I think, as you said, you know, you made the good point that uh, George is second rate to to Martha's father and Martha's mind, at least yeah. some of the time or yeah. most of the time. But I think the, the problem for George is that, he, he, you know, when Nick arrives, he, he recognizes that he's going to get demoted even further because here is a, an academic that was also a quarterback. Yes. So you've got someone that's excelled, you know, meant intellectually and physically. And uh, this is something that Martha, in her own way, sort of, uh, you know, recognizes and, uh, and uh, you know, almost tries to seduce him, really. She does. but I, And I thought an interesting subtlety there was the fact that, you know, she's constantly haranguing George about this idea that he's a flop, you know, and as you said, this guy, Nick, is in a way really just directly embodying what she professes yeah. to be seeking in a, in a real man but of course you know their their liaison isn't really a success you know i mean no. she, and again she describes him as a flop you know due to the in a more literal sense due to the effect yes, of the alcohol yeah, yeah. i mean again there is a sense even even aside from from that you know i suppose failure to perform that she has already become sick of him and actually found him inferior to george even though he is actually you know, in a sense, being more what she keeps demanding George be. She doesn't actually yeah. respect him. She calls him the houseboy, you know, and she yeah. says, oh, you're ambitious. Yeah. And there's a contempt for him. You know, it's interesting that it's a bit insatiable in a way. And I think she knows it, what she's, you know, badgering George to be. It doesn't really, really fulfill her. You know, it's like there's no. a compensation, really, that no, she's No, I mean, I think, um, yeah, I think that's a very good point. That What we see is that uh, Martha is someone that, idealizes then denigrates yeah and so what you know she probably did that with george as well but as you see uh that that flop that literal flop yeah. which she attributes to the effects of alcohol whether that's true or not we, we don't know yeah. but you know that that flop actually gets her to contemplate george's virtues and that's when he that's when she sings his praises and that she it's one of her most mature points in the play when she recognizes that someone that she feels is ineffectual in, in a number of ways uh, is someone that also, you know, deeply understands her and has is, is actually adapted uh, his way of life to preserve this fantasy that, that, she, that she in the main has. And, and you get the impression that George was never... Uh, you know, you get the feel that George capitulated to the fantasy rather yes. than someone that wanted to construct it in the first place. I think that's a great point. I mean, I, I noted down actually there was I thought I thought a brilliant line from Martha, which just yeah. kind of conveys that because she says to Nick as she's berating him following this failed liaison, she says, "Only George can make me happy, and I do not wish to be happy. I will, I will not forgive him for having come to rest, for having seen me and said this will do. He must be punished for having made the mistake of loving me." And you yeah. know, there's a really kind of mixture of kind of masochistic or kind of self hating there. And, and also just blatant contradiction, really. And I think you're right. It is like he has reconciled himself by playing her games as best he can. And he does love her, actually. And he knows, I guess, that her contempt is only part of the story. You know, there's, there's, there is, I mean, even demonstrated in the, in the play and yes. in, in moments, you know, her, 
her love for him actually still comes through. You know, she just seems very mixed up on that. Yeah, I mean, what, the one thing they they never are is indifferent to each other. <laughs> That's so true. There, there, so there's very, you know, how they say the opposite of love is indifference. It's not hate. Yes. And, and so what we what we see is that they they have a tremendous ability to elicit strong reactions in each other yeah so the you know which which suggests that there is an underlying love yeah there even if it, it's uh not all sunshine and roses i think really. i think i think you're right i mean and i guess that the point you alluded to just a short time ago as well in terms of the issue of the, the you know the childlessness and the fantasy that, yeah. that, that uh, i think again i think you're you're correct that um it's probably been driven by martha and george has joined in on this i wonder how much her if you could call it neurotic fixation on power and status that she wants to kind of somehow experience vicariously you know through a sort of father replacement and a, you know i wonder how much of that is actually just a kind of compensation you know a, a way to get meaning that really is about not having a child ultimately you know that's the thing that's that's obviously our circumstances you know again partly the kind of social context are that you know he's he's doing the, the job she's kicking about the house she's obviously drinking heavily and very passionate and yes. and, and a bold active person who's rather stifled and rather bored um so again this kind of vicariousness coming through there perhaps um yeah i mean the the it's not really clear how power focused that she is. She's obviously status conscious. Yep. But again, how much that's to do with status per se and how much it's to do with pleasing her father, it's not very clear. Sure. Um, it, it, I mean, you know, I think it is clear that that she wants George to be a success so that she gets her father's approval as well. Yeah. I think that's definitely a dimension of it. Yep. Uh, but I think you're right. There could also be that element of uh, vicarious, uh, you know, achievement because, as you say, she is consigned to being a housewife, really. Mm -hmm. uh, while her husband has a career, it's not a career that she uh, necessarily rates. Uh, but she but he has one whereas you know she is somewhat bored and has that there's there's maybe a bigger void in her life than in george's and so the the, the fantasy of the child gives her that attachment it gives her that sense of completion that yes. otherwise she wouldn't have um really there so i think that's a key part of it and probably one of the reasons why george wished to maintain that fantasy at least for a while with martha yes really well that's uh, right i mean she as as you alluded to before you know she she knows she's playing games and and she respects the fact that he can keep up with her you know as she because he's so sharp you know so you, we are talking about somebody who is as you say she's not academic she wouldn't want to do what he's doing in that sense but she has a lot of energy you know to to expend and you know that's just a really passionate kind of temperament and yeah obviously she's wanted to be a mother deeply and it hasn't happened so that that not saying that would have been the only thing that would, would satisfy well, no. that but but it maybe would have been part of the story. So yeah, she really doesn't have a lot, you know. So and she's obviously ruminating and stewing on George's career and the dissatisfactions of it, uh, you know. And I think that's yeah. obviously. What's I mean, we can see with uh, her ability to, uh, you know, skewer him emotionally, you know, to to press upon his insecurities with a 
a surgical precision that yes. this woman is smart. Yes, <laughs> she's not an she's not an academic, but you don't need to be academic to be smart. She's no. obviously an intelligent lady and 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 uh, smart, uh, but she has no appreciation of the intellectual side of life. So, no. and no. so in that regard. You know, George's career has, can only be construed in instrumental terms. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. She, you know, she's never going to say, "Well, he may not be head of the history department, but what he does fascinates him, and and is a fascinating subject." You know, she's never going to say something like, uh, like that with sincerity. No. Uh, for her, it's uh, she would she probably would have preferred that uh, he, he'd been in a subject like biology, you know, like Nick's subject, that is, you know, science is maybe even back then would have been still lauded more than the arts, uh, you know, in terms of status. Uh, yes. Certainly it could be more like that now. Uh, but, yeah, if he had been, say, uh, a, a, an associate professor of medicine or something, I think that she would have uh, felt more contented about that than history you know that it doesn't seem like she's got much appreciation for that side of life intrinsically definitely not no 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 i think and, I think and so. so that way she she's not intellectual but she's smart yeah uh but he is an intellectual that as you say can actually engage with her games really and 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 you know, just to allude to a play that we covered before, I don't know what would have happened if Butley and Martha were married. <laughs> um, because yeah. again, what we have in Butley, as you know, is as an intellectual that is very much someone that plays games and very much uh, is folk verbally dexterous. Uh, but yeah. yes, uh, it's a, that no, it's, would be a different play. It's a, well, it's an intriguing scenario, and I must say, I mean, I was there were moments with George where he was reminiscent of Butley because you know Martha obviously she at one point you know she she says that I, I look for you tonight and there was nothing there. You know she's she's really trying to emphasise the sense of him being a kind of blank void, but he is actually fiery at times, and there's a spirit and a willfulness and a kind of you know he's not a guy who's who's. Uh, coming across as really sterile and barren and, and you know, or anything like that, you know, particularly actually in the, I mean, obviously we're going to go into speak about the, the issue of Nick, yeah. this young, you know, pretender, you know, this, this guy that's, that's looking to supplant him. But I mean, the way he acts when Nick arrives is actually, you know, he, he's in a way almost behaving in the way that Martha has professed to want him to behave. You know, he's being, he's physically invaded Nick's space, certainly in the, the Richard Burton, Elizabeth Taylor, production that we that we, we looked at and he's um you know he's he's constantly um using his wit to try to make digs at him you know so there is a very aggressive and passionate response there actually to this young man um yeah but i i do wonder if martha believed that he was nothing that he was simply uh to use her term a flop in all mm -hmm. in every sense yeah I, I don't think that she the marriage would have lasted no. Uh, if he could match her fiery passion with his own version of it, I, th I think that that's probably one of the the ways that she tries to goad him into into retaliating in some way. It's a, it's yes. you know, by calling him nothing. Maybe part of her believes it, but I think a bigger part of her is saying, you know, come on, defend yourself. And so I think it's by saying something that has a a pseudo truth to it or a grain of truth to it that she 
that also preys upon maybe an insecurity of his that actually gets them then to defend themselves, which keeps the game going, keeps it uh keeps that sort of antagonism alive, which is also uh and, you know, it's enlivening for both of them. I think you're really. Right. I think because you're right. they're not they're not a couple that that are going to just descend to apathy, really. No. So and if we see it as they're, they're not going to become apathetic, they're, they're either going to be loving and caring at, or at other times at each other's throats. <laughs> yep. I mean, you know, that isn't necessarily worse than apathy, to be honest. I mean, they could, you know how some couples could just end up watching the TV and hardly talking to each other in that world of apathy. Yeah. That's never going to be them. Uh so, I, so I, I it, yeah. So I mean, it, it, it's uh, the reason I'm emphasising this is that it's so easy to construe this couple as simply dysfunctional, to use the modern term. So yeah. easy to yep. do that. And I think if we did that, we would miss uh, Albie's deeper points about the relationship here. <laughs> the it's certainly, uh, you know, a tempestuous. Uh, you know, marriage. That's that's for sure. It, it's but but it's not it's not completely rocky, and it's certainly not apathetic. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's. I think even even early on in the scene that we alluded to, where there you know there's some you know pretty fiery barbs going back and forward, and then they lie down on the bed together, and it just pretty quickly transitions into a more intimate, affectionate kind yes, of joke. Yeah. It? I mean, George, you know, again brings up, because it's obviously on his mind, this young lecturer that she's seen that he's seen Martha flirting with at the party and he sort of withdraws, you know, and you can see the hurt in her, but you, di you didn't, I didn't get the vibe that that's what he always does. You know, I mean, it seemed like actually, oh, oh this is their dynamic, you know, this, this fieriness, you know, it's, it's just keeping it always at a high tempo, actually, which is like how Martha wants it to be. Um, better uh, that yes, and, I think maybe even yeah. both of them to some yeah. extent want it to be, that's how they reach each other. Yeah. And they, they do want to reach each other. I mean that in a, in a way it's a form of intimacy for them. Yes. Because it's not detached and it's not apathetic. So I mean, you know, I'm thinking a little bit about that Pinter play, The Homecoming. You remember that one? Yes, and, absolutely. Uh, yeah. And you know how Pinter said that the biggest bastard in the house of bastards was Teddy. Yep. You know, Teddy was the academic and he and he was he was kind of like how Martha sees George, even yeah. though George isn't like that, you know, Teddy was the the very detached, aloof, academic kind of person, but yep. also uh, playing his power games in a very covert way. But but Teddy w wasn't interested in reaching Ruth. In fact, he gives up Ruth, his wife, at the end to the family, doesn't he? Yeah, that's and, right. Yeah. And, but but you know, George and Martha are intent on reaching each other, even if it's through hate. Uh, yeah. And that so so they they don't in a way they don't give up on each other and I think that's emphasised by the how much they've kept that fantasy of a, a son going really is 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 the determination to always be close to each other through either through fantasy either through affection either through hate. 
Yeah, I think I, I think that's a really um, apt comparison there. Actually, that the homecoming. You're quite right. That is that would be a very very different dynamic in that, in a way, a far less healthy one. But I think you're right. I mean, we don't they don't have that. There's not a dead vibe between them. There's not no. a kind of we're living separate lives and it's we're not dead. We're so different. And, it's and, not and dead. I mean, no. No, it isn't really. And and I mean, D.W. Winnicott, the famous psychoanalyst, he spoke about the role of aggression in terms of making contact with other people, you mm. know, like reaching them emotionally, yeah. that, that, uh, that, you know, some aggression or some assertiveness might be involved or some hate, yes. really, yep. uh, as well. So it's not as though we're necessarily recommending that all couples <laughs> start adopting the George and Martha <laughs> way of going through life. But, no. but I think that... If I was to kind of summarize what, what I believe Alby was trying to convey, I mean, I think first of all, he was trying to say that the, the modern American family, the, the, the relationships are not as wholesome or as straightforward as it's normally represented or how people tout it. You know, in other words, that it's like the suburban loving family. I think he wanted to deconstruct that and show that that uh, these relationships can be a lot more complex. But yep. I think equally, he wasn't just going for satire. It's not a Todd Solon's depiction <laughs> no. of marriage. You know, it's not uh, heavy on the irony and heavy on the satire. He's also saying that, you know, love can take unusual forms of expression. You know, that what might seem pure dysfunction uh, could be expression still of some kind of love. And I think that was another key point he wanted to make, which means that it's not simply a satire. Um, I wonder another question we were going to look at. Just you mentioned I'll be there. Uh, there yeah. was a quite a, this question begins really with quite a long quote, and it's another kind of two parter here. So Albie has said of this play, "Who's afraid of Virginia Wolf?" That the title means "Who's afraid of the big bad wolf?" Who's afraid of living life without false illusions? And he goes on to say, "There was a time when people believed in deities, and then revolutions came: industrial, French, Freudian, Marxist." God and absolutes vanished. Individuals find this very difficult and uncomfortable. All they have left is fantasy or the examination of the self. So the two-part question, if if you're still with me, yeah. is one, yeah. well, why, why do you think, I know we've touched on this, why do you think George and Martha have so desperately clung to this secret fantasy of having a son? And secondly, the broader point, do you agree with Albie's claim that people use fantasy or false illusion to avoid an examination of the self? And if so, why do you think that would be? Yeah, I mean, I, I think from that philosophical point of view, what Albie was saying was that there's no grand narratives anymore, you know. So grand narratives is this, it could be like the Marxist notion of history or it could be the Christian idea of redemption. It's this, it's this story that orientates everybody. Uh, it includes everyone and it gives them a sense of purpose and meaning because it, the ending of a grand narrative is some kind of outcome, whether it's the liberation of the proletariat or going to heaven. Yes. And that when these grand narratives fell apart, 
in the early 20th century, it then meant that uh, we didn't have any common source of meaning to ground us in you know, the overarching sense of meaning. And yes. so we had to find it in a more local sort or individualized way. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, you could say, I mean, some people have argued that with the collapse of these grand narratives, uh, that people were starting to see redemption more in their personal relationships. Yes. Okay. Uh, so, you know, in the past, uh, you know, you, you might have been more part of a community, going to a church, volunteering in the community, having a, a sense of God and a sense of meaning related to that. But if that has collapsed for you, then you might try and seek it through love in your personal relationships and through your family. Uh, almost as so like your, your your kids are like uh, a continuity of oneself and a, a sort of symbolic immortality as uh, the psychoanalyst Robert J. Lifton put it. So, you know, this, this sort yeah. of emphasis on having a child <clears throat> and that being the source of meaning could be a way that Albie was uh, suggesting that, that people then start to just overemphasize, sorry, mm-hmm. the, yep. the the family realm. Got yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think that yeah, that's an intriguing um, way to way to see it. And I, th- I think you I think you're onto something there because, um, I mean, obviously the yeah, the, they're feeling a void, and there's no question we, as we've discussed, Martha has this, and so obviously you know there's a there's a deep wound here that this fantasy is, is to some degree kind of covering over and yeah it is, it is intriguing as to why that would be so yeah i think i suppose that's a point isn't it we don't there's no sense that we're dealing with people who are say are religious they don't seem very connected i mean there's a university community but there is it does seem to be quite political there's not a great sense of close friends so no and no. and yeah as you said are these other things political ideologies and so on all yeah there's not really any great sense that any of this is there to provide the meaning so yeah i think i think that is an interesting way to look at it that they have potentially like the you know other others around really really bought into the the family as the the salvation in a way for for the cell for the the, 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 I mean, the, the it does seem to be that you know that they've uh there's a sort of almost re- religiosity you know to how much she valorizes the the idea of having a child really as so yeah. that would be the it's almost like if she had a son that that would resolve everything yeah really you know yes. that that void would be filled her troubles would come to date in a way it's like a form of salvation yeah having a child and i think that because it's a fantasy she can maintain that sense of it being a form of salvation just a bit like if you're an atheist you think well the the fantasy of a heaven uh, people can then maintain the notion of it being a form of salvation, whereas, you know, if such a thing existed, would eternal life be all that is cracked up to be? Not necessarily. <laughs> Likewise, if she had actually had a son, she would have found that, you know, her emotional response to the kid would be uh, more mixed than simply pure love. I mean, she can feel that, she could have that very simple relationship with her, fantasy son because it's fantasy whereas with with you know george it's more complex because he's real yes (laughs) 
<laughs> You're right, so, and that kind of would suggest how she might be as a mother as well. I mean, it's, it's likely that she would be tempestuous, you know, a, a little bit one thing and then the other. And Well, yeah. I mean, you, you could imagine that if uh, George Jr. <laughs> um, came back with bad exam grades that she would probably... Uh, you know, give her give him a piece of her mind, just as she does with George for not succeeding. Yes. Uh, so the, but I think because it's a fantasy, it can be a very straightforward or seemingly straightforward fulfillment of her of her emotional needs. Uh, you know, that the son is is perfect in yes. her mind, perfect because he's not real. Uh, just as you know, we could imagine eternal bliss. But whether it existed or whether it would be like that in reality is a different story. Yes. But it's a it is a kind of secular salvation that she has through this fantasy of a son. But yeah, in a way I would in a way I would disagree a little bit with Albie when he says that we're only left with uh, an examination of the self or fantasy, because hmm. I think actually if you look at the the play itself, that he he is showing that fantasy can also be connected to understanding ourselves too. You know, that yeah. they're not opposites. Because our fantasies can give us a sense of what we think we want uh, or what we most deeply want. You know, they can be revelatory sure, of that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not saying that they were examining themselves with the, these fantasies, uh, but, you know, they're not opposites. And... And I think through having these that fantasy together, they also understand each other quite deeply through it too. I see, I see what you're saying. It's that, yeah. I mean, you could almost argue that what happens in the play is it, you know, it's kind of, it's a bit, I don't, I don't have transitional objects quite the right term to throw at that. But the idea is that this has kind of lived its, you know, it's kind of served its function. This fantasy, and there's a there's a sense of growth insofar as maybe a you know they've got to a point now maybe it's not growth maybe i mean i guess that's a question we'll get onto but they've got to a point now where this fantasy is not going to continue and they're going to slightly face up to themselves and yeah you could you could say that that is you know they've they've learned something about themselves there and there is the possibility then of of actually maybe more, something less fantastical you know something more concrete being done that might help them to find a little bit more meaning i don't know maybe, maybe yeah that's... well i think that if you were to read it in a Melanie Klein sort of way, that you know she she spoke about two main emotional positions that we could inhabit, you know the paranoid schizoid position or the depressive position. Yes, and with <clears throat> with the paranoid schizoid position, what we have is splitting into you know good or bad. Yeah. And, you know, you can sort of see that splitting process with Martha in that, you know, the son would be perfect. Yes. <laughs> you know, he is flawless, uh, not only in terms of how he looks, but it just seems in terms of she has a perfect attachment <clears throat> to him. And it's what this, you know, the psychologist Robert Firestone would call a fantasy bond. Yes. Uh, and fantasy bonds can just seem perfect because they're obviously not real. But there's that kind of splitting, whereas, you know, Klein said the more mature position was recognising that 
good and bad are fused, love and hate are fused. And so her reaction to, to George in some regards is more mature. Yeah. Because, you know, there is that good and bad loving hate that she feels towards him and how she sees him. And, and so you could argue that when he say, you know, declares that the child is is dead. Yeah. You know, that it's been killed in an accident, that he is sort of saying that this fantasy no longer serves us. Uh, as yeah. long as you as long as you have this fantasy about the perfect son, it becomes an obstacle between us. You know, he's already got the issue of how she feels towards her father and yeah. how then she feels towards him. Uh, but it's almost like for them to come together more authentically, they can't maintain this triangulation of Martha, George, and this child. I, th I think I think so. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, obviously, that she keeps, you know, the, this ongoing ref referring to games, you know, which obviously, you know, but kind of evokes the Eric Byrne and the, you know, the, yes. the the adult and the the parent and the child and so on, and obviously, you know, stopping playing games and embracing reality and and its difficulties is moving to a more adult position which obviously i think you know is kind of what i was sort of getting at in terms of that how you could read this this relinquishing of the fantasy so i i think i think that is a good point that maybe albie's assessment seems almost too bleak given what he's actually depicted you know when it when it's this sort of examination of the self because obviously you know well maybe maybe he didn't mean examination of self to be necessarily a negative thing but no, i mean it is the no, case but... that it could actually be a very very constructive thing, although it's a hard thing. Um, it, it, well, yes, yeah. I mean, he might have, I, I don't know for sure, but he might have meant that you could examine yourself psychoanalytically or otherwise, but the ultimate meaning of that is far from, you know, assured. Yes. Yeah, uh, You know, because if there's no grand narratives then yes, you can introspect into yourself and, and there could maybe be some growth in that, but it's it's not going to be the same sort of anchoring in the world as what no. we had previously. I, I see what you're saying, yeah. Yeah, there's there's not the yeah, there's not the salvation necessarily to be found there. No. In, in quite no. the same in the same way. I mean it reminded me as well, you, you'll probably recall, you know, years and years ago now um, reading a book by Fingery about self deception. Yes, you know, yeah. and and you probably would have been reminded of that as well, just you know, in, in terms of this this perspective that Albie is kind of putting across here, because he you know, this from what I can recall of that book, it was depicted as something that's very much a universal kind of issue you know people struggle yeah. really to look squarely at themselves and um the idea i guess being that they you know they fear they're unacceptable you know this is you know, again you could keep, keep jumping between theories here but you could you could think about a kind of rogers you know they've they've been received conditional regard you know they've been brought yeah. up to believe they're not necessarily acceptable unless they're this that or the other so they they have this sense of being unacceptable but they can't psychologically quite hold that so that they, they deceive themselves, you know, and I think, I mean, I think we can obviously see that yeah. and, you know, and data people do that. We, we've all done that, you know, that's sort of just part of it. And, but it is a bit of a sense that something that's associated more with having a kind of more fragile ego, um, you know, the, the need to, to deceive oneself. So obviously again, you know, there's, there's the, 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 the you know, the sense of something, you know, a, a positive, 
uh, move here if the fantasy can be lived without, you know, just that little bit more ability to be autonomous and, and less in denial of that aspect of the relationship, I guess. Yeah, I, I think so. I, I mean, as they immerse themselves in that fantasy, it would be self-deception, as Fingery had said, in that on some level they knew what they were doing, that this child did not exist. Yeah. And the fact but they could get lost in it, and in that, you know, immersion, they could somewhat forget that. It's a little bit like how some actors would act, isn't it? That they know ultimately that they're not the role that they're playing, but some can almost forget that. Yes. As they're getting immersed in the role. And it does sound like that they played parents uh, to a certain extent, to the point that maybe they did deceive themselves about it. I think they would have to because... Uh, you know, neither of them ultimately believed that the child did exist. No, you no, know, of course, literally. Yeah, of course, yeah. Uh, they had different levels of attachment to that fantasy. I think, you know, George's stipulation that they should never refer to the child to other people yes. was a, that he was less self-deceived. Yes. <laughs> about it than, than Martha. You know, she, she probably felt that telling you know, Nick and Honey, the the young couple about yeah. the kid led a greater reality almost because yep. you know she was uh, declaring it to the wider world. But he he was intent that it would be this private game, yeah, uh, and that it it would serve its function in that way. But yep. yes, I mean, I think as long as there was this idea of. Uh, a perfect relationship, a perfect being in that house, that that was probably going to cause problems for both of them, mm-hmm. really, because, you know, they, neither of them can live up to that standard in comparison, really. You're, you're just right. As, just yeah. as George, you know, struggles to live up to her idealization of her father. Yeah, it's like both are keeping each other in a kind of perpetual kind of defensive egotistic egotistical kind of position in a way you know they keep they, they keep really needing to outdo or you know inflate themselves denigrate the other because they they know the other isn't actually quite accepting them as themselves you know they're, they're keeping each other in that insecure state insofar as this 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 need for the perfect being keeps being evoked you know this attachment to that impossibility but you know particularly in terms of Martha and the child yes, you know that yeah in that yeah, keeping their relationship from becoming more adult and, and less less. Games. Yes, yeah. Although there is an ambiguity in the play as to how much this fantasy kept that relationship going, you, you know, and how much relinquishing it will will allow it, them to move forward. I mean, as we've been saying, that you could make the argument that there will be some growth there in the relationship, but equally. It could be that it doesn't survive without that crutch. It's not really that clear. Yes. Uh, at indeed. least to me. <coughs> I, I, I feel sorry. I feel that there is that ambiguity there. Uh that uncertainty is maybe a, a way a better way of putting it. Yeah, I mean <laughs> I, I I that was actually, you know, that was going to be a question, which again you've you've kind of really you know, to some extent answered there would be yeah, that the this finale was it you know, was it a note of optimism? Is it a, you know, how how do we read that? And I think, I think obviously it is kind of ambiguous in that sense, you know, what, what, how it might pan out, the, the relationship. Well, it is, yeah, because 
the fantasy of that son was a refuge for Martha. Yeah, uh, that that she would go into. I think when. Uh, her and George were not getting on, to put it in an understated way, uh, that she could retreat to that. Yes. Just as, you know, if things are stressful, you could read a certain book or watch a certain movie that takes you to a place where you, you would prefer to be. Yeah. But she was doing that in a, shall we say, a more extended and rigorous form uh, in her life. So without yes. that... Yes, maybe they come together and recognize their imperfections and the their difficulties. <clears throat> or maybe maybe without that, it seems too empty, uh, too too difficult, too too ambivalent to, to survive. I don't really I, Yeah. I mean, my guess would be it would mm-hmm. survive. Yeah. But but it's not but it's only a guess. I think uh, he didn't <laughs> want to make it too tangible. I, I quite agree. I mean, even in that um, final scene, I think George says something like, tomorrow will be Sunday all day. You know, and yeah. he said this just in relation to the fact that the fantasy of the sun is now over. And, and there are, yeah. you know, they're obviously the, the kind of, the, the cliche of the, the long Sundays and the, yes. the dullness yeah. of that. So, yeah, I, it's like there was a kind of somberness to that, really, because they, they were then, they were talking in a more straightforward way with each other. You know, they weren't playing a game. They were talking honestly and intimately but yeah, there there is a there is probably the lingering fear as to well, what does this mean if that's what the relationship is now going to be? You know, will it will it have the spice? You know, that that the, yes. uh, they need. I don't know. I don't well, know. I think answer. that's a good point. And I mean, George's prognosis is not a hopeful one. No. If it's like a, an eternal Sunday, then that does mean, as you say, that it's rather dead. There's no spice to it. Yeah, uh, and. Yeah, if that's the case, then killing off the sun, killing off the fantasy, you know, is is would mean that the relationship dies. You know, the connection dies there. I mean, that is a possibility. It's again, a possibility, yeah. Again, that's how he's seeing it, and he may indeed be wrong uh, there. I mean, yeah. I'm tempted to say that because his, you know perceptions of other people in the play tend to have an accuracy to mm, them mm-hmm. that uh, he might actually be talking on behalf of the author there i, I mean it's it's really it's difficult i mean as as you you were you were saying earlier on you know obviously the, these are two very bright people who really do get each other and do yeah. to some extent love well they do love each other to some extent they appreciate each other and also they're you know but that's complicated so yeah you know it's not like the basic ingredients for two people to have a fulfilling relationship are not there but it's more a question of you know they're both you know where they are now and where they would need to be for it to be a stable workable relationship you know there's a bit of a a journey would need to be to to be going on there and it's not clear you know they're going to be able to maintain enough equanimity to to do that you know that's that's the the, Uh, the danger yeah not necessarily um and what we what we see you know with the albi quote that we're left either with fantasy or the examination of the self well it does seem to the ending does seem to corroborate that in that the fantasy is gone. So now there would have to be an examination of the self, an examination of the relationship. Yep. And whether that has the same vitality to it as the fantasy is not, not clear. Yeah. That's the thing. That is it. I mean, it's it's there in potential form for, for, for yeah, for a vital relationship. But yeah, I mean, it's not clear that they can actually 
realise that, you know, between the two of them, given that, well, clearly they've, they've clung, the, the fantasy has been clung to. And it's not really clear how Martha will find fulfilment in life, actually, either. You know, there's no child. Career-wise, George is doing what he's going to do. She's not really vicariously going to get much from that. And obviously, she's tempted to stray. You know, there's... there's She's, she, I don't think there's any sense really that she's going to begin up a relationship with Nick. You know, I think that was more of a kind of fling. But you know, there is, you know, these are all definitely risk factors there. <laughs> so I don't know. But yeah. Well, yes, yeah. I mean, it, it's it's not clear at all uh, there. I got the the feeling in the the play that you know she was concerned about being an aging woman there yeah. so you know because obviously elizabeth taylor is playing at martha and so you, you know it gives the sense that uh you know as as a younger woman she'd be even more attractive and as yeah. an aging woman that should be struggling more to come to terms with that uh yes and to to come to terms with it without the the thing of being a mother might be even more difficult for her We've talked a little bit and we've alluded to to Nick and Honey and you know the, the the role that Nick plays. But you know, I'm just thinking about the fact, you know, the way that George reacts to him, um, you know, shows how much he sees this guy as a real genuine threat, you know, that he might be ditched. You know, whether whether that's just you know a sense of low self-esteem there, but you know, he he, he seems to see this person as a as a threat. He also um has quite a cynical take on him that, as you said, turns out to be right. You know, he seems to be this accurate reader of people, you know. So that I was wondering how, what, what what you kind of made of that, you know, in terms of what, what would we take away from Nick? I mean, is this something, is this, and, and, and perhaps George's astuteness here, you know, in terms of this possible threat? Yeah, I mean, one of the things I took away from the, the Nick situation and how it was at the university is that, you know, Albie was saying that uh, the education was becoming devalued because, you know, if you listen to the way that Martha speaks about her dad yeah. and the way that Nick spoke about, uh, you know, climbing that greasy pool, it's like some corporation, you know. I mean, yeah. Martha speaks about her father, so he was the CEO <laughs> of a company in a way. Yeah. And... You know, Nick is also talking about, uh, you know, he doesn't really talk so much about his uh, research. And admittedly, that would make the most dramatic play. <laughs> sure. But I think that it's also to do with his character that that is maybe secondary to actually, uh, you know, becoming more and more senior within that university organization. So, yeah, it did seem like Alby was saying that it was becoming more corporate and less idealistic, really, there. <laughs> In, in some ways. That that's one of the things I took away from that and, and one of the the purposes that Nick was serving in that play. Yeah, it's a great point. I mean, I, th I think I think you're right. I mean, he's he's anything but what you would typically imagine a, a, an academic to be. You know, he's like a sort of new generation, but in, in a in, in quite a negative sense. You know, so yeah, I, I you know you could you could see it as a kind of you know political critique to some degree. I mean, to in terms extent, of a, yeah. to some extent. I mean, I think I think also there's a kind of more of a 
you know, we've obviously talked about Albie's philosophical kind yes. of take on things. I think there's maybe that as well, you know, a kind of the sense of, I don't know, crassness and cultural decline there when there's yeah. going to be, you know, an absence of ideals and, you know, broader movements to be a part of and so on. Maybe it's just a, yeah, another way that people try to psychologically cope in that environment, that kind of post-grand narrative world that, you know, yeah, self-advancement. I mean, um, yeah, exactly. Yes, I mean Nick is somebody that uh, <clears throat> you know is not engaged in examination of the self, but he's engaged in you know uh, you know achievement, status. Yeah. Really, status is taken over from any other kind of meaning. He doesn't yes. even seem to get that much meaning from his research. <clears throat> but I think no. I think also another uh, you know function that he plays. That he has in the play is that he uh, he is an embodiment of uh, qualities that are valued not just by Martha but the wider society that that uh, George lacks in some ways. So, yeah, okay. you know, as we said about being a sportsman as well as a mind, really, yep. and also his youth compared to you know George being you know middle aged. Yes. So there's like that sort of again, you know critique of maybe American society <clears throat> that, that uh, you know, values things or overvalues them and, and in again, some ways. And, and, and we see with with Nick that he is still very flawed. Well, well, exactly. I mean, I thought it was really interesting the way his characters developed, really, because obviously, as, as I said, George goes on the offensive the moment he comes in the door. You know, he's quite vicious. And it's, you know, initially Nick's, he, he's subdued to some degree in the way he responds to that, but he does, there is still, you know, he knows it, he knows what's going on. And although he, he's maybe being strategically um, holding himself back to some degree, he still doesn't exactly, you know, he kind of avoids questions. He has a kind of passive refusal to quite either connect either either square up to George in the face of this kind of aggression or 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 bow down either you know he's kind of um, playing it a little bit cagely and and of course when he's had had the drink you know we see later on he, yeah. he basically says that he he married his wife you know because she yeah. her dad had a lot of money you know and you realize this kind of he, he becomes a bit more passionate and animated about his his really quite materialistic bottom line self-interested perspective you know which george has kind of cunningly um kind of uh, encouraged them to 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 open up about you know yeah. to get a bit of material on him you know um yeah you do you yes. do see okay and, and also of course the 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 fact that's the sciences i think there's a there's crack george makes a crack about him you know biologists trying to create the master race you know yes. this, this <laughs> that he's you know but yeah again this the, it's like he's part of something new and kind of instrumental and, and lacking maybe what history represents to george you know something yeah, exactly um yes. as he sees yeah. it um but yeah. yeah i mean that's the thing i mean uh nick sees people largely instrumentally Yes. And uh, even his subject, which Nick, you know, sorry, George sees in somewhat a paranoid way, but not <laughs> completely without, you know, any grounds as something that is, uh, you know, trying to streamline, uh, you, know, you know, strip people of their humanity. Yes. And, I mean, that's not completely true, but it's not completely false, you know, either. He sees that aspect in Nick. Uh, he's 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 alive to the soullessness of Nick in some ways. Yeah, but I mean, we we mustn't, you know, denigrate Nick completely either. I oh, mean, sure. you know, when he recognizes at the end, 
that this has been a game that they've been playing, that there's no sun, there is yeah. a horror and pity yeah. that no, comes over him. And, uh, you know, he, he takes his wife and they leave, uh, you know, with some respect and some empathy. So the, the, there is that kind of uh, understanding there. That's a good point. I think you're quite right. I mean, we can obviously, yeah, I mean, there'd be the danger that we, we depict him through, a, yeah, I sort of George's kind of slightly paranoid reading there when it's, it's yeah, it's not it's not that simple, really. No it, no, it isn't. And I mean, there, yeah. there was some bonding between George and Nick, uh, you know, when they were outside. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Talking about their wives, which, you know, Nick maybe actually was more innocent and uh, just uh, more happy to bond than than George, who was uh, he was more concerned of uh, you know getting dirt on him uh, in a way. So yeah, yeah, there was a certain you know more innocence uh, there with Nick. It's not as though he's completely calculating and instrumental no 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 but, and, and there's but, also the the point that you know as his wife honey has you know she's had a, i guess a phantom pregnancy you would call you would call it and so obviously there was you know it wasn't just about her dad's money there was the idea that well he was going to you know as they would say do the honorable thing you know as, a, as it was kind of seen back in those days yeah. you know that he's he's stuck with her and yeah there is a sense that he you know he and he's quite he's he's good with her insofar as she's ill and he's you know to some extent he, before he gets too drunk and goes off with martha you know he's trying to sort of um help look after her but yeah there is a sense that they're they're not they've not got a terribly strong connection there and and that's not really you know what Nick's thinking about primarily, I guess he's thinking about his career, really. You know, and she's kind of coming along. Yes, yeah. Um, I mean, yes. I mean, their relationship is not necessarily better than no. George and Martha's. Like initially, it might seem to be, but uh, you know, Honey seems to to lack, uh, you know, Martha's incisiveness. You know, our smartness oh, very much. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I thought. And, I mean, it's not as though she doesn't have some depth and complexity as well, because uh, you know she had an abortion, yeah, uh, which uh, you know he thought was a hysterical pregnancy, as he yeah. calls it. Yep. Uh, but, but you know, one of the things that that stood out for me with uh, Nick is that you can see in the way that he responded to to George that he, he you know, he he's obviously. Uh, a, a sort of new generation that does doesn't have the previous deference or respect given to the to their elders that maybe in a more religious time younger yeah. men towards older men. It's an interesting point. And yeah. So what what you see is that while he's polite towards George, there's there's none of that. It it, it just seems more strategic than anything else. I think it's strategic. I mean, I think when they have the, you know, it's the, it's a great scene when they're out kind of, you know, drinking outside. And there, as you said, there's an element of bonding, but then it kind of goes a little bit awry. And then Nick really is quite derogatory. You know, he kind of shows that he thinks what he really thinks to some degree about somebody like George, which is basically that he's over the hill and that he's not on his level. But I thought, I mean, I thought one of his most interesting lines in a way he makes a very kind of crass joke about martha you know and he doesn't he says something about she has the the most 
inviting avenue on the campus. You know, it's quite a crash yeah. joke. And he, he's obviously, he thinks he's kind of joining in with George, who's kind of himself is, is being critical of Martha, but he doesn't really get how that might, you know, that it might be more complicated than that for George, you know, that actually yes, yeah. hearing somebody say that, but, you know, and that really does irk him, that kind of, complacent attitude but again it just you know you know he, he was almost assuming that george had no real emotional attachment to martha that he'd be fine with hearing that kind of thing it wouldn't bother him maybe because he you know to some extent that's a little bit how he is with honey actually you know he's just a little bit more emotionally detached there you know a little bit a little bit more indifference perhaps um, yeah i think i think so I, there isn't really yeah, I mean, he, he shows some concern for his wife when she takes ill and things like that. But yeah. the the hysterical pregnancy thing, you know, while that might be what he thought was ha happened and as a medical term, yeah, it also just gives you a sense that he maybe views his wife as hysterical overall, mm. and he and he doesn't take her fully seriously. I mean, he's. You know, if if she's if she's ill, throwing up, he, he would want to go and attend to her. But he he kind of sees it a bit clinically, scientifically, a bit detached, a bit really detached, from her. Yeah. And he makes uh, clear he had no qualms about having affairs for strategic. No. Reasons. You know, he's absolutely no, he okay. wouldn't, and he he doesn't understand at that point in the play uh, the depth of feeling that George has for Martha. You know, he yes. he just seems to think that because they've been joking and, uh, you know, he's seen George and Martha argue yeah. that, that George would be quite happy to join in in that laddish joke, yeah. really. But uh, George doesn't look at Martha in that purely instrumental way. He's, you know, Nick has just assumed that, that George wanted to marry her because it was the president of the uni's daughter. Yeah. And yeah. it doesn't, and it's obviously much more complex than that. Well, I mean, it's, I mean, it was brilliantly done in the, you know, with uh, Richard Burton in the, in the scene where, you know, he comes back to the house and he sees um, Nick's trousers on the stairs, you know, yeah. so he knows they're up the stairs together and he and he kind of both laughs and then goes into a kind of shriek of, uh, you know, despair and it's kind of both. He can see the absurdity of the situation, but it, but he's deeply, deeply hurt. You know, this is, this is, you know, very hard for him to bear and obviously then Honey comes over and he can barely speak to her, you know, because he's, yeah. he's so angry and upset and hurt, you know. So, yeah, I mean, it's like there's a level of emotional complexity there that, is kind of beyond Nick, really. He just doesn't seem to quite, you know, he's more kind of conventional in some respects, but yes. he certainly isn't, yeah, he's, he doesn't really get the dynamic at all. And I suppose then it, it's quite almost apt or, you know, it's almost like he gets his comeuppance to some degree when Martha begins to, well, humiliate him to some degree afterwards and makes clear, you know, her and George, you know, have a, a despite everything that's happened, again, they're a little bit more in tow with each other in the kind of banter, you know, the, the sort of um, exchanges that go on at that point. Um, and, yeah, and, well, he he would not have the, the wit or the dexterity to engage with her in the games. No. Uh, nor no, would no, he no. have the desire, George, for that. Sorry, Nick, for that, because no. he... He's playing other games in terms of uh, advancing in that university system. Yes, exactly. Really, that's what his focus uh, is on. And in many ways, he's a more simple creature than what George or Martha are. 
Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, and and it works well. I mean, it is. I think it's you know the the, the four characters. You know, um, I mean, it's a it's quite a long play, but it's extremely extremely compelling. You know, it's such a kind of electric um, script, I guess. You know, and uh, well, and yeah, it, it, well, it is. Yeah, I mean, the it's like you couldn't have four characters like George and Martha. You know, that would be imp- You know, no, really, no. it would be too much. You know, and so he kind of has that. Yeah, it's very effective. The the kind of characters a contrast there i think well yeah and, and obviously the the nick and honey relationship was uh was designed to highlight aspects about george and martha including their strengths actually yeah because you're right. it's not as though the nick and honey relationship comes off any better and this is something that martha says to, to nick you know you think you're better than others yeah, and no, he, I think he says that. Well, I am, but uh, you know, she's long past thinking that he is. You know, uh, she finds him a flop in a number of senses. Well, exactly. Really there, and uh, he's he's then demoted to being a houseboy. Yes. Really. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, like she she reads him very, very, very quickly, and you know, when she goes to get changed and and kind of come, you know, comes back in a in a slightly more revealing outfit, and she sits beside him and kind of, you know, Honey's relegated to being in a chair at the other side of the room and so on, you know. But again, she knows that he's okay with that. You know, she can kind of see through him and see what he's what he's really looking to do. So, um, yeah, I think um, he's not quite on her league in terms of emotional intelligence, uh, Nick. Yes. Yeah. I mean, she. She, you know, wants to win affection in a way, you know, after some sparring, really. And this is something that he doesn't really do. I mean, I guess uh, it's more about George, really. He, he's really the kind of object that's entered into the game at that point. But it really is about getting at George, I think. You know, George obviously fears it's about finding his replacement, but I'm not actually sure that's what it is about at all, you know. Um, uh, no, I mean, that was obviously a fear. <clears throat> that he had yeah but um but actually because she had had that very brief dalliance with nick it, it, it actually leads her to appreciate george more yes exactly she recognizes that there were there would be many men that could actually play those games with her and keep up with them as even as, as she says she changes them yeah, that's right. Yeah, it certainly. Um, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I don't recall having ever um, seen or read any other Albi plays. I don't know, but it, it does make me want to explore them further because it's a really, it really is quite a, a brilliant <coughs> yes, play. Have, have yeah. you, have you seen any others? Or no, I haven't really. But I think mm. I would be one to look at others. I, I saw this one many years ago, and it left an impression. But it left even more an impression this time. Yeah, you know, round. Most definitely, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, just uh, I think I was more struck by the, you know, animosity, you know, between them at the first time watching it. But I think I could see around that and understand it more this time round. Yeah, well, I think it is as we've been discussing. You know, it is such a kind of subtle complex dynamic it really it's not it's not any kind of cliched relationship that's been depicted there and i I mean the thing is the film i mean the the version we've been you know we've been discussing i mean it was it was really it it was an enormous hit at the time as well i mean i think it's i think it's something like one of the only two films ever 
to be nominated in every single Oscar yeah. category that year, yeah. which I think you said earlier was 1966 or something like that. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Um, and the um and the, and in terms of I think Elizabeth Taylor won an Oscar, didn't she? And I think was yes. it Honey, the, the, the actress played yeah, Honey's the, name, the I forget. Played Honey won best support. Best support. So, uh, but I mean, to to be honest, uh, you know, all four of them could have won Oscars. Really, they were phenomenal. Uh, and in fact, uh, I think all four literally were, were nominated. I don't know who won best yeah. actor, best support actor, and so on that year. But I mean, it, it really, yeah, they could, they all, they all deserved it. I mean, it is a brilliant production of a brilliant play, actually. Um, I think it's also available on YouTube as well. I mean, we'll put a maybe put yes, a link in the show notes. Yeah, that's kind where of out I there watched now. it. Um, um, and yeah. yeah, but but yeah, I mean, as as we found out, you know. Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor were married yes, at the time that it was the getting the made, and then they ultimately divorced, but probably not because the <laughs> fantasy of having a kid, uh, no, you know, no, no. was punctured really. But but yeah, I wonder if that if there were some jokes on set as they were making that because they were actually a couple in real life. Yeah. Well, yeah, we, we traced <clears> out the timeline earlier and obviously the marriage did sustain quite, you know, quite a number of years beyond that film. It you did, know, it wasn't it them did. on their kind of last legs, but then they, 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 they got married again. They, they got, yeah, they the divorced. Time, yes. so, um, and divorced again. Yeah. But so. yeah, the, <laughs> there was obviously something about their own relationship that uh, was uh, very close, but of, could sustain itself because you know they were married twice yeah and uh, cert certainly there's a chemistry there i mean it is, it's just two wonderful performances actually you know that just i mean they couldn't have got the cast any better for that i don't think they were the first choices actually i'm sure i remember reading that i can't remember now who was originally um in mind for it but i mean they were can, can you remember can you remember no i don't actually the, no, there was um, I, I i'm sure it'll come it'll come back to me but yeah they um they, they were brilliant i mean you couldn't have imagined anybody else doing a better performance uh in that yeah in i that mean role. i could actually imagine alan bates doing george to be honest you know that yes yeah i could i could see him i'm not saying he would have done it as necessarily as well as burton in this case i don't I don't really know, but I could sort of see that being a a decent casting decision if well, it happened, and well, maybe it has. <laughs> uh, maybe he did play on the the West End, uh, yeah, in Britain, but. Uh, I, I wonder. Yeah, I'm, I'm. I'm trying to actually just as we speak. I was just scanning to see if I could find the the initial kind of casting choices because I did read it somewhere, but I can't see it. But yeah, you're right. I mean, Bates obviously you, you highlighted the Butley link. I mean, there's no question he could have played that part well. Um, but but yeah, yeah it's um, it, it's. Um, but I think that Burton was was ideal for it because he he could play that Butley like you know wit, but there was also that. Intimations of love as well. Yes, uh, exactly. You know, and hate too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> at one yeah. point, George does try and strangle Martha. Yeah. Yes. Uh, what did you think? What did you think about that choice to take it outside the house to the to the diner? To the diner. Yeah. The box. I mean, would you? Because yeah, some, not some critics have wondered about whether they should have took it out of that. Did did it give it some breathing space, or did it did it dilute the the tension in a way that was 
uh, you know, unhelpful. I, th- I think that's a very good point because that wasn't in the original play, was it? That was added in. I, I don't think, think it's it Ernest, was. Ernest no. Lehman that, that wrote it. And, um, yeah, I agree. I mean, you have the kind of comical scene where Honey wants to dance on her own and she's doing a very kind of silly interpretive dance type of yeah. thing. And you have the, the kind of very, very, very sexual dance, you know, with um, yes. Nick and Martha. But, yeah, again, I don't know if that was quite necessary, actually, because, I, I mean, I could see why they put it in. I guess it may be the sense there's more drink, there's more tension building up, and then, of course, you can you can leave George behind and they can go speeding off yeah. back. But, yeah, I don't I don't, I don't, don't know. It was probably what the, really the weakest, weakest scene, I would say, I don't, and I think it definitely didn't add an awful lot. Um, yeah, I mean, it may be... <clears throat> Maybe Lehman introduced it as a way of making it more credible that uh, you know Martha and Nick go to bed. Yeah, you know because George has left to walk home, they then have that chance if you want to put it that way. Yeah, to sleep together because he turns up a bit later. So maybe it was for the plot in that way, whereas if they were all still in the house, it would have been harder to explain why George, you know, allowed that. Yes, it, it does. It kind of works in that kind of in that kind of way. Um, just sorry, just to hark on about this point, but I have discussed the the original casting choice, which Albie was very much behind, was actually to have yeah. Betty Davis playing the role, um, ah. and you could see that would you know why that would have would have worked as well. Actually, Betty Davis was uh, going to be James Mason would have been George. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. The, I could I could see that I could see that working. I'm just wondering why those two turned it down. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's a good point, actually. Um, I think it was essentially the... It wasn't Albie's decision in the end. I don't know who had the final call on the casting, but, um, yeah, I don't know why, actually. Yeah, I I, I would... uh, would, I would think that that. probably what happened there is that, yeah, you wouldn't have had control over it and the studio would have gone for what they would have considered at the time more bankable stars. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, Bette Davis would have already played Baby Jane at yes. that point. Ah, yes, of course. And obviously, yeah, she would have been as uh, photogenic, shall we say, as, as uh, Elizabeth Taylor and maybe not as much a star anymore. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. I think that, that Bette Davis is fantastic and, and might actually be overall a better actress than Elizabeth Taylor, as great as Elizabeth Taylor was. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but yeah, maybe for those reasons. I think on stage, Bette Davis, you know, would have been, you know, you know, ideal in some ways for that. Yeah. Well, but, I, but, I, I, but I don't know. Maybe, maybe it still makes more sense Elizabeth Taylor doing it because she did brilliantly capture a, Martha's crassness and her smartness, you know, just perfectly. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, again, I mean, she obviously won the Oscar, and and it was well deserved. Yeah. It's interesting though because I'll be, you know, he he's he a, a quote I'm seeing from him here was that he still felt that he, he said with Mason and Davis you would have had a less flashy and ultimately deeper film. That was his take on it. So he he well. Could have, yeah, but I, I, I mean, obviously, obviously, things have really changed to actually see this as a flashy movie <laughs> now. I yes. mean, you know, because it, it's not, uh, it, it's still very literate. Yeah, really, especially by our modern standards now. Absolutely, uh, yeah. you know. Right, yeah. I, but but yeah, he he might obviously because he wrote the play would be very protective of it and want to have as 
ideal uh, depiction of it on screen as he could. Yeah. And he maybe didn't want it to be too film-like, you know, maybe wanted to retain some of that, you know, theatrical significance and refinement. Sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, the... I mean, James Mason, you, you know James Mason, don't you? And yes, he's another yeah. actor that had a deep baritone voice like Burton. Yep. And I could certainly see him playing an intellectual, you know, a his, an associate professor of history. I could certainly see James Mason that would, that doing that. Worked. Yeah, that's but, but I And I think he could have played, you know, the, the hate and... and regret that we see in George like Burton did. But whether he would have been as good or I don't know, whether he would have been better dude. I mean, you know, it's Burton very was hard. very, very good. Yeah. Uh and it was and Bette Davis, you know, is obviously a a great actress, a subtle performer and someone that had no compunction in inhabiting uh dislikable or you know characters no you know and she she had a certain zest for that i mean uh, I, I would imagine elizabeth taylor herself probably would have taken a certain amount of inspiration from betty davis's previous well yes yeah. i mean really apparently actually she said she had to gain 30 pounds for the part which is quite a remarkable <laughs> uh dedication because it's as you said that she was regarded as one of the most beautiful women in the world but yes. this character was a you know 50-ish you know, lady. So obviously, she really, you know, um, but it was done again. It was done very well. You know, I mean, obviously, she looked like somebody, as you suggested, who was who had been extremely glamorous in her youth, was still attractive. But obviously, this is fading a little bit. Yes, yeah, so so, I think it helped with the logic. Yeah, of the the movie that she played it compared to Bette Davis. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, I I still could see Bette Davis doing it very well. Oh yeah, I uh, think so. But yeah. but I think you know, and maybe I'll be wanted a little reference to Bette Davis early on, because remember she says, where is that line from? What a dump. That's and, right. You know, she says that's it's a Bette Davis awesome. movie. Yeah, yeah that's uh, true, yeah. Really there. But, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I just, yeah, I just maybe think that for that particular role, maybe Elizabeth Taylor was, was going to be better overall. Yeah. Again, we'll never know because we didn't have that version get made but yeah i i just uh yeah i i just somehow i think elizabeth taylor might have been better suited i know i i i agree and and again i think it's i mean it's obviously speaks volumes for the kind of caliber of this this film that you know we're talking about you know the, these a-listers and yeah you know the, the nuances they might have brought to it but i mean it is it is just such a fantastic play and such and it is a really good despite as you said slightly slightly maybe weak scene put in but in terms of go to the diner so on but i mean for the most part it's extremely it is a really really strong film and as far as adaptations of a play goes it is i, I can't think of many better than that i mean it really is it's really that top top well standard. i think i think so yeah i mean he, he, he was obviously just talking about uh what he would have thought would have made it even better. Yes. <laughs> but, you know, having Ernest Lehman that uh, wrote the story that Sweet Smell Success is based on, you know, the That's famous right. noir. Did he not and do I North think, by Northwest? Was that Lehman? I think he that? maybe did, yeah. Oh, possibly, yeah. So he was obviously this great writer, screenwriter. So mm. there was, a, you know, top yeah. drawer talent. Absolute top drawer talent, uh, yeah. There. I mean, great. it's interesting that I'll be 
didn't adapt it to the screen. Maybe he didn't want to, or maybe mm. uh, the studio didn't let him. I don't know. Uh, yeah. Really, there. I mean, it, it, it's. Uh, but I mean, at with, least I think that you know, Layman had you know, Claire has such good taste, and I, I think he, I, I, from what I can recall, it, the dialogue really didn't change very much. You know, there was a little bit added, but I, don't, I think he was very, very faithful to the original script. So I, I think Albie wouldn't have been too distressed by what he saw there. Well, no, I think he would just be tasked with making it, you know, filmic. Yeah, I think uh, so. Which, you know, you know, would require some decisions to get made. But as you say, if the dialogue is, you know, very similar, then it wouldn't be so much working at that level. No, 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 that's right, yeah. But I'm, yes. now, I'm, I'm conscious of time. It's been obviously it's been really interesting uh, talking about this yes, brilliant you, uh, play. And yeah, th and thank you, Alex. So yeah, I guess we'll have, we could leave it at that for tonight. That's but, great, um, then. Thank that was, you. That was really enjoyable. Thank you. Good night. Oh.